Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Prue Clark. Saturday marked the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks, and in the build-up there's been a flood of pieces in the media remembering the day the world changed. I've told the story once or twice of being on the ground at the towers that day reporting for the ABC. We've heard about the unity the attacks inspired, but we've not heard enough about the aftermath, the hostility to Muslim Americans, and how politicians exploited that unity to unleash catastrophic wars overseas and unprecedented curbs on civil liberties at home, all the while sowing divisions that are crippling America today. In this edition, we look back, not to remember but to interrogate the media's role in America's failed response to the terror attacks. Could things have been different if they'd been more sceptical of the Bush administration's rush to war? To dissect all this, we have a very special panel with two terrific journalists. Andy Rosenthal was the long-time editorial page editor of the New York Times. Before that, he was the national editor. And Andy is New York Times royalty. His father, Abe, was the long-time editor of the paper, who famously defied the government to publish the Pentagon Papers, revealing that the government knew the Vietnam War was a failed enterprise from the start. Andy recently became the new editor-in-chief of a Swedish website called The Bulletin. Doa Madani is a breaking news reporter at NBC News. Before that, she worked at Huffington Post, and before that, she was my student at the City University of New York, where I also taught with Andy. A first-generation Lebanese-American, Doa was eight when the planes hit the towers. Doa Madani and Andrew Rosenthal, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure for me to be talking to you, former colleagues and journalists at the centre of what was probably the darkest period in American journalism. Doa, you were a schoolgirl in Brooklyn, I think, when the planes first hit. Can you tell us what you remember? We had actually um, just left New York. My family moved to Florida um, about a year before, year and a half before the 9-11 attacks. So it was even worse to be not, I, I, I that sounds uh, horrible because I know that, that the kids who, my own family members who lived here went through something absolutely terrible, but it was almost worse to be away because what I remember was being in school and I was running an errand between classrooms when an announcement was made. I ran back to the classroom and we didn't get sent home right away. So I spent the whole day trying to figure out if my family was okay. I didn't know what was going on. And when I got home, I remember my mother on the phone trying to get a hold of people, but it was impossible to get a hold of anybody back in the day. Uh, In the day that it happened, the the phone lines were just impossible to connect. And it took hours before I found out if my my aunts and uncles were alive. Um, And you know, within a few days, another kid at school was calling me a terrorist. And it was, honestly, I feel that I've repressed a lot of that, that few day time span. It was really uh, terrifying. And 20 years later, I'm genuinely still processing it. Mm -hmm. So it was within days that that you were being stigmatized? To my memory, yes. Mm. 
All right. A- Andy, you were at the New York Times. What, what, I was. Yeah. Um, in fact, I live in a little town in New Jersey, and it was the first day that I was driving into the city because I had gotten a car, and it was the first day of a new job. I'd been promoted to be managing editor for news, which meant I was supposed to be worried about that day's newspaper and what's happening that day. And that day, I got in my car to go to work and I turned on the radio to find out about the traffic and I heard about a plane hitting the World Trade Center. And I I sat there, I think I was as stunned as everybody else. It it didn't make any sense, you know, and I was was trying to do all the things everybody was, was some idiot in a private plane, what's going on, you know? And, uh, but I knew something was happening and I made two calls. The first call was to my older brother to make sure that he had actually retired from the company he was retiring from and was no longer working in the World Trade Center, which fortunately was he was at home. And then the second call I made was to the home of the New York Times uh, city editor, metro editor, John Landman. And I was talking, he was down at the gym and I was talking to his wife and the second plane hit and I said, you got to go down there and get John. Because obviously this was some kind of a massive disaster. And I you know, sort of personal experience. I never got into the city that day. I, uh, by the time I got to the Lincoln Tunnel, which goes into Midtown Manhattan, they had closed it. And then I tried to go to another place and a cop turned me away. And I drove all over trying to get into the city. But every time I went to an entrance to the city, it was just closed. And um, uh, so I went home and I got home and my um, extremely... um, liberal wife was flying an American flag from our balcony, which stunned me. And so was everybody else, you know, and um, first thing I had to do was collect my son who was, uh, I guess he was five. And, you know, they let the kids all go from school. And, you know, we were all just trying to process what was going on. When I had been driving into the city, I got to this point where you're at this football stadium called the Meadowlands. You come over a rise and the entire skyline of Manhattan is right in front of your face. And there were the two towers burning and the, the, the highway into the city was lined with parked cars and people standing there staring at these towers burning. And, you know, it was sort of incomprehensible. And what really we were all focused on at the time was, oh, my God, they attacked us. Right. And um that kind of that they attacked us thing became the driving dynamic of everything that happened afterward. Yeah, and you talk and about. I, I, sorry, I, I can't even imagine what you went through, Doha, because I'm not that person. You know, I am as I once as I recently wrote an application for a job at a university. I'm a cis white hetero male. You know, and um, nobody bothered me. But I remember getting into a taxi with a seat cab driver shortly, what maybe two days later. And the guy was flying like 18 American flags from his cab. And I said, what's the deal? And he said that the Sikhs in New York were being attacked and that he himself had been attacked and that the people in New York were going, I mean, Sikhs, they're they're so far away from Al Qaeda that it's almost impossible to describe. Right. And yet they were being attacked because they were dark and they looked like they were Arabs, even though obviously they're not. Mm. And it was bad, but it was all disguised in our minds as they attacked us. We're protecting America. Yeah, and you speak to your 
you know, the left very much joined everybody else in being incredibly patriotic in the aftermath. I remember being surprised that there was very little, if no, coverage of the the people who supported Osama bin Laden and what this American imperial enterprise had done to sort of create that level of support. There was none of that in the media. There was very little scrutiny. It was, you know, it was all about being patriotic from every angle. So, Doa, for you and the the years after that, what was it like being a Muslim American? And and what do you remember of the journalism? It was so back and forth, I would say, that that experience, because in, in some ways it's it's incredibly, uh, I'm incredibly privileged in the fact that I don't wear a hijab and my mother doesn't wear a hijab. So sometimes people would think that I'm Spanish and it would be fine. But other times it was, it, I mean, the kid who called me a terrorist was a kid that I was friends with on the playground. Um, it was this weird, I had never known anything other than being Lebanese my whole life. Arabic was my first language. And we had only left Brooklyn where I was raised and where my whole family was and where I grew up in Bay Ridge. And <laughs> that's like little Beirut. All, all of the, you know, Middle Eastern population there is, is absurd. And so to come from that, to go to Florida, where it is not ethnically diverse in that way, where I think I was like the only Muslim kid I knew for a long time. It was, I went from being like every other kid to feeling my difference in a way that I had never felt before, but also recognizing that I was really privileged in that I could hide sometimes. Um, it, I remember the summer after 9-11 coming back to New York and my a relative yelling at me in the street to not speak Arabic to them, which was really weird mm. <laughs> um, and slightly traumatic. I I blame that really for stopping speaking the language and, and my Arabic is really rusty now. And so it was everyone. It wasn't just, you know, white people. It was it was other black kids and Hispanic kids. It was it was everyone. Mm. And what, um, do, what do you remember of the journalism at the time? I remember my family stopped watching American journalism uh, for a long time. We, My dad would really only watch Arabic news channels. And all I heard was, you know, that they don't understand that this isn't us. Um, I remember the, the headline, which I think went around Twitter the other day, that was, why do they hate us? Uh, I remember them just not even getting things right. I'd never heard of, you know, my parents were pretty devout. My family was pretty devout and I'd never heard of Sharia law before. Um, I had never heard of jihad. These were, these were not common in a lot of Muslim households. And there were so many nuances, just absolutely like most people I knew didn't know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia. And so when they would say things to me, like, you're a terrorist, you're a terrorist. I was like, that's not even the same. I'm Shia. I'm not Sunni. There's, there's Sunni. It's not even the same like subsect of the religion. It's like calling a Lutheran a Catholic. Mm. <laughs> so when and, were you when did you start thinking about journalism as a career? Um I started thinking about it really deeply in high school. Uh actually it was Bob Herbert columns in the New York Times that I was obsessed with and I felt so moved by them 
and they provoked my thoughts so much that I that I just knew that this was a space where you could make a difference and you could make a change. And to be just even in the room where those conversations were happening could make a huge impact. And I joined my high school p- newspaper um, at 17 and it was history from there, I guess. Mm. Now, Andy, um, you were at the New York Times, then as now the bastion of rigorous accountability journalism, made legendary <laughs> under your father, and then it completely <laughs> drops the ball when the Bush administration's push for war in Iraq. Um, you know, there were the series of stories by Judith Miller that um, that falsely propagated the idea that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um James Risen has since spoken about the fact that he found it very difficult to get sceptical pieces published at the time. What, what was going on? Uh, uh, a lot of things. Um, you know, Judy Miller uh, did not sneak into the New York Times and, and publish all those articles in the paper without any of the editors noticing. And uh, uh, it was not, I know, some rogue thing that was going on. I, I think we had a couple of gigantic blind spots. Uh, One of them is journalistic, which should be easy to cure, but somehow it's not, which is that the specific thing that people were going after was what's in that intelligence report. And and in Washington, you know, those documents like that, especially ones that aren't public yet, become, you know, points of obsession. And so finding out what was in the intelligence report on Iraq became the main thing. And our reporters did find out what was the intelligence report on Iraq. They found out quite accurately. The one thing that they did not do and we did not do was ask ourselves, is this all just a lie? And um, we weren't asking that question of ourselves at the time. We didn't ask it of what the administration was saying about Afghanistan. You know, and Afghanistan was much more clearly involved, obviously, um, in whatever it was that we were dealing with. And um, we weren't asking it of ourselves and we weren't asking it of anybody. And there were, you know, we did not pay attention to the dissenting voices in the government. And there's a lot of people who will say, oh, I tried to make them know. And if they did, I'm not sure what newspaper they were working at, but they weren't working in the one I was working in. And um, the other thing we did not pay attention to was the, um, uh, the voices of the people in the world who were opposing this. We acted as though everybody was sort of in favor of it. And we we wrote about the things that were going on. But if you read the New York Times, the fact that there were a million people in London on that day is just not going to be apparent to you. Mm-hmm. you know. And the idea of all these people rising up, I think, got pigeonholed in our minds as oh, those Europeans, you know, they're always a pain in the butt, you know, and um, people started criticizing the relative bravery of the French. You know, we started calling our French fries freedom fries, you know, not me, but (laughs) weird people in the United States. And it became, suddenly it became okay to be jingoistic, right? And, And I don't know at which point I realized how far we'd gotten, but there, you know, there is one moment I will tell you about uh, where uh, during the heat of the the, the war in Afghanistan, um, we had a series of photographs from one of our, you know, one of our people there of the Northern Alliance, and they had stopped um, a Taliban by the side of the road, and they were making fun of him, and then they forced him to drop his pants, and then they shot him in the head. And um, I saw these photographs, and I thought, well, those are going to go on the front page, or at the very least on the front page of our, our section. 
And there were editors in the room at the New York Times who were arguing that we should not run those photos because they made our allies look bad. And I remembered at that moment, my father, who I try not to quote too much, but who said to me, you never refer to the enemy as them and the United States as us. We are not them. We are the newspaper. And we lost a sense of it is not us versus them. It's the United States government that's having a war with another group of people. But we we became identified with the United States government because it was all us. And, you know, all those headlines, you know, we're all Americans, we're all this, we're all that. And American exceptionalism just blossomed in this moment because we all mm. acted as though this was this was the first terrorist attack in history. When what was happening really was is that the United States was finally catching up to the rest of the world, which had been subject to terrorist attacks for decades, mm. you know, and and it was abetted by a lot of, you know, in France and England. And they were all acting as though this was the worst thing ever done. Yeah. What, but and it, it was it was it was really bad. I'm not trying mm. to, you know, to mitigate the attack. But it wasn't the worst thing that ever happened. It was just the worst thing that ever happened to a bunch of Americans in New York. And <laughs> and that's different. But it really focused this idea that, like I said before, American exceptionalism, which is one of the gigantic problems of the world today, just blossomed in the United States. And, and nobody ever stopped to think of the questions you're asking. The, the issue about why are people doing this? All it was was, why do they hate us? And the answer was never really explored was because we went in there and we destroyed their world. Right. And look, it's not and just it, the, the times, you know, in fairness. Um, no, it's not just the times. Right. I mean, I did, I did a long list of, of the media, the liberal media that supported the war. And it's it's everyone. I mean, starting with Christopher Hitchens, who was really the Pied Piper writing at The yep. Nation. Then The New Yorker, mm-hmm. Atlantic, The New Republic, Washington Post, Fareed Zakaria. In twenty yep. in 2002, Vanity Fair ran a cover spread of Bush in the cabinet looking like Hollywood stars. Um, and mm-hmm. Tom Friedman said, you know, The New York Times, you have to do it, but you have to do re- regime change right. Um, and of course... They're following on from the decade where there was a successful intervention to stop genocide in in, uh, the Balkans, and they didn't intervene in Rwanda and 800,000 people were slaughtered in 100 days. So there was was context, and I got to say at the time, I felt felt a little bit sympathetic because, um, you know, what if another Hitler came along? Surely... Um, you know, American power could be used to do right, and and as you know, as as uh, as I heard someone note recently, a lot of these people were predominantly Jewish men who were heavily influenced by the Holocaust and excited at the idea that the U.S. could use their power um, for the force of good. Um, do you think, Andy, without that support from the liberal media? Two people like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden supporting the war. Do you think that they would have been able to be so supportive? You know, there's a chicken and egg thing here, Prue. I mean, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton were the kinds of people that we were talking to. You know, and, and you know, remember, there is this, especially in the area of national security reporting, it's all this weird, strange, elite priesthood. And they all know each other. And, the, you know, and a lot of the people at the Times who were on the receiving end of the national security advice from their top secret sources were completely um, lied to by them or they didn't know or whatever. And, and um, it was really a kind of, you know, elite, one group of elite and another group of elite talking to each other in a dark closet. 
without, you know, any hint of what's going on, you know, never mind on the ground in the Middle East, but right there in New York City, you know, and, you know, we started surveilling Muslims, we started doing all kinds of stuff, and it all became about Muslims. And, you know, the idea that this was about Al-Qaeda or this was about Osama bin Laden, you know, kind of vanished relatively quickly. And then when George Bush decides that he's going to let Dick Cheney talk him into diverting American forces from a probably unwinnable war in Afghanistan, but one that we weren't even you know, pursuing, to a war in Iraq that was one of the most gigantic blunders of foreign policy in human history, and that actually set, the, set up ISIS. It wasn't even on the radar that there was something about this that was connected to everything else in the world, that was something about this that was connected to American and British and French and Italian and so on, imperialism, especially American and British. It just, it wasn't that at all. It was one group of people who decided to attack us for no reason because they hate our life. They hate us. Our freedom. They hate our freedom. (laughs) Right, right. And we get into, you know, I mean, and uh, by the way, this this persists, right? And I know we're going to get into this later, so I won't say it now, but it's not as if this was an isolated moment in human history where the American press suddenly screwed up. Not just the American press, by the way. It wasn't just the American press, but the United States was leading the war. This is a problem that has persisted since then and to this day. The next few years saw this just unprecedented crackdown on civil liberties in America, um, and and you know a vast surveillance apparatus that was was set up that was only revealed by. Um, Snowden, years later, um, forcing Muslim men to register. I'm sure you knew people, Doa, who were forced to register their their movements. And then these horrific stories of innocent Muslims being grabbed out of airports and taken to black sites and being tortured. Where was the media during all of that? I remember, I mean, I just remember the way that my family was talking about this time and and the people around me. And it was it was so stark to us and it felt like no one else like I would go to school and no one else was hearing about these things no one else was knowing about these things and I only found out from eavesdropping because I was so young and my parents weren't uh were trying to make sure that I didn't grow up too traumatized I think but I mean I learned about the failures of regime change in Iran by listening to my family at the age of like 11 and and 10 and all in the context of this war. And, and I think any Middle Eastern person and, and uh, in America at that point in time probably could have told you that this was a terrible idea. And it just was so clear that they didn't know what they were doing. And they, they've made that mistake before of trying to fight an enemy they don't understand. And, and look, about a year into the war, it became pretty clear that it was a catastrophic mistake and that there were no weapons of mass destruction. What did that mean for Americans' trust in the media, do you think? I think it, I think it really diminished it, you know, and um, it, it, the media had built up a certain amount of trust after Watergate. You know, we had risen above garbage men in people's minds and above lawyers, you know, which are always <laughs> at the bottom of the heap. And... Um, you know, and this became um, a real problem. I mean, that it became a real problem. It, it it revealed problems in the American press, which you know we hadn't really been looking at. And um, I, 
a lot of it had to do with, you know, kind of brain blindness, you know, where, you know, how it is when you just don't see um, the, the reality of other people's lives. And this happens in little tiny ways and it happens in gigantic ways. And the, this this idea that um, the United States was going to was going to not just avenge the attack on the World Trade Center, which you can kind of get your head around in at least some way, but was also going to bring democracy to these countries. And I would ask you guys, since you know more than I do, even that if can you name a country in the world where American military intervention created democracy? If you can, please tell me. I've been thinking about this for a long time and I can't. Not once. So I posted on Twitter asking if there were any place where democracy had blossomed overnight, and somebody found this obscure, you know, early 1900s in Finland um, kingdom or something. But yeah. Oh well, that's nice. There was probably some city in Greece, you know, in in 300 BC, where everything suddenly became really nice. Exactly. But it's not what we're you were talking about the reality of today. Yeah. What to what what extent was the lack of diversity in the newsroom an issue? Huge. Huge. I mean, it's true in every newsroom, you know, and I wouldn't have said it at the time. I mean, my own understanding, you know, I'm a, like I said, I'm a, you know, cis, whatever it is I said before, I said it better, 65 year old man, you know, and um, I see things very differently now than I did then. And I understand things better now than I did then. And what, and and I got to tell you that my experience working in Sweden has also heightened this. And that is this idea that um, the offer of diversity is a bunch of baloney unless it comes with belonging and identity. And, you know, just telling people, okay, we like you now, we hired you. And what the New York Times used to do was, you know, we'd go out and we'd hire the flavor of the month African-American journalists to show that we were serious about diversity. And then we would tell that person, okay, go ahead and just deal with the New York Times. I'm sure you'll adapt. And it never occurred to us that there was something about the New York Times that was wrong. Right. It never occurred to us that it wasn't just their inability to adapt. There was something wrong with our system. There's also just got to be a space for people who are black, Middle Eastern, uh, Hispanic to actually be able to voice the problem, because I'm I'm so aware of, of right. people of color in, in journalism who have left because they were just exhausted and the recognition that it is emotional labor. I am the biggest loudmouth I know, so I will say what I feel, even if I think it's going to be a fight, and I will go toe to toe because I grew up with four boys who, you know, taught me how to throw a punch before I was able to run. Uh, so I'm not not that I would ever punch anyone in a newsroom, but I'm not scared of a fight. Um, is what I was trying to get at with that. But I'm I'm was raised with that kind of you have to uh, stand up, and also I think being. Uh, Arab American after 9-11, there is, uh, you've got to stand up for your community. Even if I don't report on them every single day, if I see a problem, I have to say something. And the amount of sometimes placid uh, dismissal that I see happening is the real problem. It's not that there aren't diverse people in the room. It's that that they don't feel like they can speak up and they don't feel like they're going to be heard and nothing will change. So the numbers of also, diversity has changed, Doa, but you don't think that the outcome has changed? The number in the rank and file, I would say, um, has improved. But uh, the further up the ladder you go, and, and not just in terms of um, Middle Eastern people, but just generally, it is 
that is where um, a lot of the the diver- diversity still needs to happen. You know, I mean, at one point, you know, when people were talking about the potential next executives of the New York Times, and someone says it's going to be a really tough decision. They're going to have to choose between graduates of Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. <laughs> Obviously, there was an explosion of disinformation after that. 2004, Facebook started, and suddenly there was this flood of content that was designed to be shareable on these new social platforms, and so many conspiracy theories took hold. And I'm I'm sure that those uh, conspiracists are now in the ranks of Trump supporters. Um, So, Andy, you know, how do you see that line between then and now? I think there's a lot you can, you know, there's a lot you can take from the mistakes that American journalists made after 9-11 to the mistakes that American journalists made in 2016 and in 2020, which is just not looking, just constantly looking at the world through the prism of our own experience, you know, and, you know, trying to figure out what makes crazy people crazy. That was, that's a big thing in journalism, right? Why do Trump supporters think what they think? You know, well... It's not the it's not the question and it's not the answer, right? And um, we, you know, we got very gung ho and crossed the line between you know, of opinion about the war, and then we got very scared about it. We backed off, and then we went through a, ver- a period of well, we can't really say anything, right? And and then when what happens, which is the fear of anybody who's ever studied American history, was the inevitable fascist uprising in American in the in the American public. We acted as though we were astonished and surprised and didn't know what to do about it. And then we decided that everybody is normal. You know, you can be as crazy as you want, but if you're in a position of power, then it's normal. So everything everything now gets rated by, is it crazier than Donald Trump, you know? And all of our standards got just thrown into the garbage can, you know? The, 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 the nomenclature we use to describe American politics is now literally worthless. Right, left, conservative, liberal, those words mean nothing in American politics anymore. And yet we continue to use them. And precedented. The continue- What's that? Precedented and unprecedented is my new favorite useless word. Oh, well, those are, you know, those are, we had this guy at the New York Times named Al Siegel who had to retire because of the age, but he used to go out of his mind whenever anybody said it was the first, the biggest, or the unprecedented because it was never true. <laughs> and um, he said, never do it, never do it. Every time a reporter says this is the biggest ever, it turns out to be wrong. Um, and it's also, it, it's the wrong measure, you know? Is this the worst attack on, how many stories did we see about the worst attack on American soil in history? Mm-hmm. Oh, what's that got to do with anything? We've seen, we've seen Me Too, we've seen Black Lives Matter. Definitely more, a big effort to have more diversity in the ranks of the media. Is there anything happening that makes you hopeful? I think, I mean, I look at my own network and the days that I really want to quit journalism as a whole, not just my job, but where I just think it's all pointless. I look up and I see that my network uh, on MSNBC and NBC, we have Eamon, we have Ali Velshi, we have uh, Mehdi, we we have people that I've never been able to see look like me on our air. And... I didn't understand quite how impactful that would be for me. I think whenever I I have like tough days where I think that like I shouldn't be here and I don't know why I'm wasting my time. 
I think about the kids that will get to see my byline. And I think about all the times that I challenge an editor, which is my editors will probably tell you too more often than they would like. Um, I, I think, you know, there is hope because I've stopped some of the things that I would have been livid over as a kid. I mean, we're 20 years into a war in Afghanistan and there are people who don't know that Afghani is the currency and not a person, not a citizen of Afghanistan. Mm. So, you know, there, there are these things where it, it seems so inane, but is actually genuinely impactful and important. So I think the fact that we're even in the room is already a sign of hope. Great. All right. You know, I, I think that's true. You know, if I could just, I am not as, as negative as I appear or sound. <laughs> I don't appear at all. But um, uh, what, she, what, what you're saying there, though, is, is exactly correct. You know, and in my experience in this little tiny little newspaper in Sweden, we advertised for interns who are fluent in Arabic and, and Swedish or Somali and Swedish. And we got 250 applicants overnight. And I asked every one of these kids, most of them did not want to be journalists. And I interviewed 15 of them, I think. And I asked them all, why are you applying for this job? And they all said, this is the first time anybody's ever invited me into the room uh, because they're members of a despised minority in Sweden. Uh, that is the migrants who are fleeing the nightmarish circumstances in which they were born. And those, that's the despised minority. And um, these people are changing. They've changed us and they're changing this little tiny newspaper, which has gigantic. I'm not saying everything's been solved here, but just having them in the room makes everything different because it changes the con people become more aware and it changes the conversation. Now, the problem with that is, is that we then allow two people in the room and we put the entire burden for fixing white people on them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, and that's, that's wrong. I think what, you know, some of the lessons from 9-11, I think we're already seeing that. Uh, in in the coverage post 9-11, we're already seeing that in newsrooms because I think during Black Lives Matter, there was a huge conversation about how much we rely on police. And we could go back to the Judith Miller story and how we don't uh, challenge kind of it, the intelligence report was right. That was the report, but we didn't challenge the information in it and we didn't question the people who were giving it to us. And yes. I think that that is a core conversation of journalism in the, the age of police brutality that was so much easier for me as a Middle Eastern American who grew up post 9-11, as a Muslim American, uh, to understand the importance of than I think uh, if I hadn't had that experience, I, I wouldn't have been able to so easily understand the importance of it, which I think is when you've never had to be in that position where a person of authority is lying on you, um, is, is lying on your name, uh, you don't, you just accept it. So we've already learned the lessons of 9-11 or we, we're maybe learning them in new ways today, the same way we, in, in these, you know, Black Lives Matter and Me Too moments. But we were supposed to have learned those. I, you know, sorry, it sounds like I'm disagreeing with you. I'm not. We were supposed to have learned those lessons oh, after a, after the Pentagon Papers, where we discovered the, that the American government had lied completely about the war in Vietnam. We were supposed to have discovered that after Watergate, where the president turns out to be a criminal, right? 
And every time we are, we being the American press is presented with one of these moments of challenge, we act as though it's the first one. It ain't. In that vein, they weren't very diverse newsrooms. They were not very diverse newsrooms. And, but until not even, now. you know, until now, but, you know, and I'm, look, I'm not in a newsroom, right? Well, I'm not in any newsroom because it's the day, it's the year of Zoom, you know, <laughs> but I'm not in an American newsroom, obviously. Um, but the coverage of the end of the war in Afghanistan made me, filled me with despair. Yeah. Because I uh, felt that the American the American press had learned literally nothing, and not just nothing about the world. An American remember America the average American nothing about the world be, begins and ends on the two coasts of the United States, right? Nothing mm-hmm. about the American government, nothing about history, nothing about telling the truth. The coverage of the end of the war in Afghanistan is appalling. This moment became inevitable. First of all, nobody ever loses a war and retreats with dignity. I mean. I can't mm-hmm. think of one. But also that moment of chaos and horror became inevitable. Maybe it became inevitable on the day the United States invaded Afghanistan. You can make that argument. But it certainly became inevitable on the day that George Bush and Dick Cheney decided to wage their ridiculous ideological war in Iraq, which was primarily designed to increase the powers of the American presidency. It wasn't designed to bring to bring democracy to anything. It was Dick Cheney's demonstration exercise about how the president of the United States should be the most powerful human being on earth. And um, that's just a fact, you know, and and then everybody acted like Joe Biden in his 15 minutes in office had some way of changing that. And I'm not saying they didn't screw up. I have no idea. I wasn't there and I haven't, you know, and but the idea that somehow a decision by Joe Biden in the first minutes of his presidency led to this catastrophe in Iraq, in Afghanistan, is just not true. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And yet it keeps being... Yeah. I think... Yeah, sorry, go on, just just to finish. I think in the modern age, we've just normalized. I think there's a lot of criticism of normalizing George Bush after Trump. And I think that that's a lot of where... I mean, there was was still conversations about Trump uh, and his... uh, He's only been out of office for less than a year. But... We, we really? George Bush has gotten out of uh, <laughs> out of this pretty scot free. Oh my God! Yes, everybody was. Oh, remember Bush? Remember Bush? Remember Bush who tortured people in prisons? Remember Bush who tapped our phones? Yeah, I used remember to always. Bush say, tra- we still had a I long mean, way to God. go before Trump did as much damage as Bush did, um, but he was on yeah. his way. Thank you both so much for a very candid conversation and and really illuminating, I think, for our audience. And I really appreciate it. And hopefully I get to have coffee with you in New York soon. I would love that. On that note, I'd like to thank Andrew Rosenthal and Doa Madani for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Prue Clark. Thanks for listening.